Well, good morning. How's everybody doing out there? You can talk back to me a little bit. Uh, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. In a minute, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. Our third through fifth graders are dismissed. And um, my name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time, we're, we're delighted that you've taken the morning to come and worship with us. Can we show our appreciation? Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In a moment, I'm going to lead us to pray. I just also want to let you know about a special event going on this week that some of us are going to be a part of and ask you to join me in praying for that. Uh, the Praetorian Project, our military church planting project, uh, this week is a special week for us. All of our planters uh, at our 14 different churches uh, uh, or church plants are gathering this week in San Antonio and their families getting together for a time of encouragement for two or three days. Uh, it's a, a time of refreshment, equipping, and connection uh, for us. Uh, I just ask that you would pray for that gathering this week as we are there, uh, that our, those who are out on the front lines doing ministry on our behalf would be encouraged, and each of us that per partake in that event uh, would return with extra just drive and excitement for the mission that God has given us for the next season. And, and so just ask that you pray for that. And uh, Wednesday evening, I'm going to be preaching at, that, at our evening gathering, so if you can remember, pray for me as I do that. Uh, during that time. So let's invite God to speak to us through his word and uh, pray for that event as well. Lord, uh, we are thankful for your word. We're grateful that we could study it today as we think uh, about what it says uh, and invites us into to a life of transparency and walking in the light before you, Lord. We pray that you would affirm uh, our confidence in your love for us, Lord, that we might know that you have good purposes when you draw us out into honesty and repentance. Lord, uh, I pray for the Praetorian Project uh, family retreat this week. Lord, I pray that it would be just a special time of encouragement, of calling and uh, consecration for our planters and their families, uh, for each of us uh, personally and corporately as we seek to see your mission carried forward in military communities around the world. We pray that you would do something special by your spirit uh, in our midst this week. And uh, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the C.S. Lewis novel, The Silver Chair, which is like book five in the Chronicles of Narnia, I think, I can't remember, it depends on what order you go in, uh, there's this amazing scene that really captures the essence of entrusting ourselves to God. Jill, one of the main characters, finds herself in mythical Narnia and nearly dying of thirst, she happens upon a stream of water. Standing near the stream is Aslan, who in the stories 
represents God, and it's clear that he's the one who has brought her to this stream somehow to be refreshed and to be rejuvenated. The lion says, are you not thirsty? Aslan is a lion, if you guys have been hiding from the Chronicles of Narnia for the last couple decades. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. You see, she's afraid of him. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. You see, our, our passage uses the idea of light, and here it's water. But it brings us face to face with the challenge of whether we can trust God with our lives. One of the primary things that we have to realize is that God is not just sort of a byline in our story, but that he's inviting us in to experience the real transformation and provision that he has for us. And this story captures the fact that when we bring ourselves to God, that he has this way of remaking us that often scares us before we step out in faith to take of his living water and entrust ourselves to him. And in the same way, the passage that we look, we're looking at here today calls us to the same thing using the imagery of light. It's a question of whether we will allow the shining light of God's exposing truth to expose our lives and bring us on to salvation or whether we'll shrink back and we only want God's help when we need it rather than the deep transformation he says that we really need. You see, the depth of our need for real spiritual life from God, for real spiritual transformation, that it requires us to entrust ourselves to Him, that the, the depth of our need is the theme of this passage in which we find the most popular verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. We're beginning a series today called Greatest Hits, which was a way to keep myself entertained as we work our way through this series uh, where we are looking at the most popular verses in all the Bible all summer, and we're going to ask ourselves what they really mean in the context that which, in which we find them in Scripture. Uh, of course, if you're like me, you love a Greatest Hits album, I'm not going to give you any examples of my favorites, because last time I did that, it got me in trouble. You know, somebody turned it on for their kids on the way home and found the worst possible song, all right? Jack Free, if you know him, all right? But, all that to say... Who loves a Greatest Hits album? I mean, show of hands. Yeah. 
And, and you know, it's the, it's the fastest way to get to the heart, like, of a really good band, right, is to just put on the greatest hits. And, and in a sense, uh, we're going to look at the most popular verses of the Bible that have captured the imagination and attention of people for literally hundreds of years, and we're going to ask, what do they really say about the gospel, about who God is, and about the core of the message of Scripture. And there's no passage more well-known than John 3.16. So I want to ask the question, why is it so popular? Why is John 3.16 so popular? I don't think it's difficult to understand why John 3.16 is one of the most iconic and memorable verses in all of Scripture. Its popularity or familiarity lies in its ability to simply and succinctly capture the heart of God's message for us in a way that most people can easily understand. It expresses the most central ideas of the Christian faith in a way that can help us begin to wrap our minds around the rest of what it means to follow Christ. Furthermore, it's straight from the mouth of Jesus himself, which makes it even more, have this feel even more credible and powerful as a definitive statement of what God has truly offered to us. Think about it, all that, that is really wrapped up in John 3.16. God loves the world. You may take that for granted, but there's a simple expression of God's heart that may not always be obvious to everyone. We see that the love of God has a concrete expression around which we can begin to understand it. He gave His only Son. The power of that idea alone, when grasped and understood from our human analogy of what it might cost to give up a treasured child... The power of that idea alone when grasped and understood expresses a clear intensity of God's love in a concrete way that we can really understand. It's hard to imagine. Doctrinally, the, this verse says that God has a uniquely begotten son. And that is who Jesus is. Not just a prophet, not just a teacher, but the uniquely begotten son of God. It tells us clearly that Jesus stands apart from all humanity as having come from the Father and sharing in the totality of His essence and deity. John 3.16 tells us that the core matter of the Christian faith is, is not an issue of works which we have obviously failed in and could never complete to be accepted by God, but an opportunity to receive salvation by faith and what this Son is now providing on our behalf. By believing in Him for salvation, we can enter into this hope and experience this love that He begins with. I think another reason it's so popular is that the call of the passage goes out generally to whosoever would believe, which in this context says that even I and even you can turn from our sin and receive this saving forgiveness and provision from Jesus. It makes it personal. Then ultimately it reminds us that this is a significant and a weighty decision to receive this hope and respond to Christ between perishing in our own sin and condemnation and wisdom of being saved through this offer of faith extended to us. It's consequential and determines our destiny and our future. Because of all this, the passage John 3.16 has found a special place among Christians since the first century. And if you just happen to walk in today and you're not sure what the central message of the Christian faith is, that is exactly what it is. So it's a powerful passage that every Christian should commit to memory and understand well. 
But what is the context? What, how does John 3.16 actually play out in this conversation Jesus is having? Well, Jesus says these words in the context of a larger conversation with the Pharisee named Nicodemus. Maybe you remember Nicodemus. He's the one who came at night in the darkness to talk to Jesus and get to the heart of his message. He was a religious leader, a Pharisee of his day, someone who was expected to teach others, but he found in Jesus someone who was saying something that was literally wrecking his world about what it means to really know God. In essence, Nicodemus says, uh, we have seen your works to Jesus, so it does seem God has said to you, but I'm unsure of your message. Jesus replies earlier in the chapter, before the portion we read, he replies to this by saying, you need a full-on spiritual rebirth given by the Spirit of God through faith in the Son of God. Like, you need to be totally changed. There's so much in your life that needs to be transformed and examined that you need to come out into the light. You need to be born over again. (laughs) To which Nicodemus says, how can that be? But if you think about what that means, it means a pretty massive overhaul, doesn't it? Starting from square one. Here's a religious leader in Israel considered a spiritual guide to others who needs to be spiritually born because he's spiritually dead. Well, that's that's a serious need that Jesus is pointing out that every one of us have. That we don't find spiritual life on our own. And because of our sin, we've been born separated from God and separated from His spiritual power and strength. And Jesus says, you don't just need some basic improvements. You need to be transformed. You need to be born again. Born anew. And you know, that may sound like sort of cheap religious language from overuse in a time like like ours. Where sometimes it's made fun of. What happened? Did you get born again? Well, the truth is, I needed to be born again. And anyone who's ever had the light of God's truth shown over their life has realized they weren't spiritually alive but dead, and they needed God to do something they couldn't do for themselves. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, and and he has trouble wrapping his mind around that. And so, believing he was perfectly fine and still trying to get that, Jesus begins to make it really clear And he uses this idea of light that's at the center of our passage that we read and really is at the center of the way John wants to help us understand Jesus' message. You see, John has already summarized the core challenge we have with receiving and entrusting ourselves to Jesus using the terminology of light in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And here we are in chapter 3. In chapter 1, he says this, The true light, speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, the light, Jesus, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Here is spiritual life, spiritual truth, right in their midst, and they don't recognize it. And it's not just them, we don't recognize it. Apart from the Spirit of God helping us to understand and us being willing to be honest, we don't recognize it. It says then in verse 11 of chapter 1, he came to his own like Nicodemus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
a God-given spiritual birth through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says Nicodemus needs, but before any of us can get there, what what the passage tells us is we are going to have to trust the exposing light of God's truth and His holiness to bring us to the place where we realize this is what we really need. The same idea from John 1 is is what is at the heart of the passage where we find John 3.16, this verse that's our focus today. It's part of a conversation about Jesus as the light that has come and what we need to understand to be able to respond to it in faith. So in verse 16 through 21, we're going to hear a specific challenge as our main idea. And here's the main idea of John 3, 16 through 21. It's not up on the screen. It's blank, so you're going to have to pay attention. All right? This is just where you write down the main idea if you're a note taker. Here it is. This passage here, Jesus wants us to be assured He wants us to be assured by God's purpose for sending him. So that we'll let the exposing light of the gospel lead us to true spiritual life. Be assured by God's purposes to let the exposing light of the gospel lead us to spiritual life. That we be assured that God has good purposes for us in shining the light of his gospel and truth on our lives. So that it can lead us to a genuine, life-changing salvation. So let's look at the ways that he does that. So so the first thing actually that happens in this passage in verses 16 through 21 is that Jesus assures us of God's purpose in sending the light into the world. Now Jesus is the light. He's picturing his ministry, his teaching as this powerful, piercing, exposing light. And And 16 and 17, actually, those two verses are are there to make clear why God has sent Jesus into the world. What is his purpose? Because some people might see the reality of their sin and think that God has come to bring judgment, to bring condemnation. And so in the text here, uh, where John 3.16 comes into play, it's primarily John 3.16 is an expression of God's purpose or intent For sending his son into the world. Why has the light come? What is the purpose of this exposing light? And the answer is given here in these first two verses that we looked at. In both a positive and a negative statement. So verse 16 is a positive statement. And verse 17 is a negative way of saying the same thing. Let me show you what I mean. So first, the first verse 16 answers the question. Why did God send his son? The answer is clear. He did it because of his love. Okay, So this is the boundary. When we think about God, the first thing that has to be clear, God sent Jesus into the world motivated by his love. And so that through faith, we could be saved through him. You see, the experience of hearing Jesus teaching about our sin and our true nature, coming to grips with our own weakness, and why we need real spiritual transformation, that experience can feel on the surface very exposing and like God has it out for us. You know, one of the first responses I see that many people have to clearly understanding the teaching of Jesus is they feel condemned. They feel exposed. You mean I'm that bad? I'm not as bad as the Bible says I am. I don't have a desperately wicked heart. I'm not hiding sin in my life. My sins have not been that serious. And Jesus says, oh, they've been so serious you need to be born again. 
and they feel exposed, they feel condemned. And you go, why did, why did God send his son into the world? Was it so that I would feel condemned? Know how bad I am? Beat myself up? No, because God loves us and he wants to rescue us from that place that ultimately will lead to perishing. And so this verse clearly says the positive, purposeful reason for God sending the Son is that it's a clear act of love. The Father gives up what's precious to Him and sends Him into the world to to not only live an obedient life, but to die a suffering death in our place out of His great love for us as a rescue plan. So that's why God sent the Son. Verse 16 exists to make that really clear. But then... He also uses verse 17 as a way of saying, what is off limits as an answer to the question? What's off limits as an answer to the question, why did God send the Son? Well, it's, it's pretty clear in verse 17. Clearly, Jesus wants to, uh, wants to address this with Nicodemus. Many people, on hearing, hearing that they're sinners, feel a sense of condemnation. The honest need to orient ourselves to where we really are. And discover that we're sinners so that we would respond to God with humility runs the risk of a fallen, broken interpretation of what God is doing through Jesus. One that says, God just wants me to be condemned. He wants me to feel guilty. Well, it's clear that's not the purpose Jesus came. We're already guilty. In fact, if you look in the next verse, he says, the problem is you're already condemned. Your actions, our actions, our sins have condemned us before the judgment seat of God. We are already guilty, therefore God, seeing us in our guilt, has sent the Son into the world so that we would be saved. And notice how clearly he says it in verse 17. Jesus says, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. So the purpose of the light coming that is exposing The purpose of that exposure to the light that reveals our sin, our cracks, our weaknesses, our deep spiritual need. The purpose for that isn't condemnation. Although we have to travel through the dark valley of some real honesty before we can see what the real purpose is. But it's for salvation. God's purpose of exposing sin in our life is for repentance and healing and salvation. Now Jesus has to say that because we get confused about it. But condemnation is off limits as the answer for the purpose that Jesus came. That's not why he came. He's not come to condemn the world, but he has come so that the world through him might be saved. Ever since Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, we have lived in a day of grace. A day of mercy before the the judgment seat of God in which we can actually be saved and forgiven because of what Jesus has done. The purpose that he came for for was for that salvation. There will come a time when, when Jesus will judge the world. The Bible clearly teaches that he is the only just judge who, because of his wisdom, his love, is in a position to truly and rightly judge every man, every woman, every child. But for this time, he has called us to proclaim a day of grace because of what he's accomplished in the purpose of Jesus coming here and now is for us to experience the grace and forgiveness of God and know that we are secure in him. So Jesus assures us of God's purpose in sending the light into the world. 
Now, if we do not get this settled, then we will respond in ways to Jesus and his message that are foolish and destructive. And Jesus explains that in verses 19 through 20, our second point. It says this, Jesus explains the verdict about the primary reason for rejecting the light. We've already been hinting at it. We've been already getting at it. I just want to say it and show it clearly here in the text. Jesus explains the verdict about the primary reason we reject the light. We see it in the text. Jesus gives a verdict here in verse 19. You see where it says, and this is the judgment. Some versions say, this is the verdict. What's going on there? Well, what that means is that this is Jesus expressing the core insight of the passage. The core insight of this passage about those who receive his saving work and those who do not. In doing so, he gives a clear warning to the human heart not to respond in a certain way when the light exposes our life. And about what can happen when the light shines on our lives and we allow him to bring us to a place of honesty and repentance. Here is the judgment, he says. The light, him, has come into the world and people loved darkness because their deeds were evil. Did you catch that? Of the gospel of Jesus. Not because you gave it an honest look. Not because you didn't think it was important. Not because God hasn't shown himself to be trustworthy. But because I'm not ready to deal with my sin. I'm not ready to take an honest look at who I am and what my weakness really is. He says, the light has come. It's not that we haven't had the opportunity to know who God really is. He sent his only son into the world. That son came with clarity from God. He spoke exactly what we need to know God. We are not living in a time of agnosticism, despite the fact that many people remain agnostic. Jesus, the divine son, has come into the world and told us what God is really like. Yet we hide. Yet we flee. Yet we stay on the, the fence. And, and we like to say it's from a, a place of honest skepticism, but Jesus warns us that there's something going on in every human heart that might be different and might answer the question differently for why we aren't as open to the shining light of the gospel as we ought to be. And he says it's because of our sin. We would rather not be seen for who and what we really are. And because of that, no matter how much light comes, we will run for the darkness. This is the core insight of the passage. The light has come to the world and people love darkness. And when it says people, listen church, it doesn't just mean the people out there. It means humans, all of us. We share in a condition where we would rather hide in the darkness and allow our lives to be open to the light. That every person wrestles with this, both in coming to Christ and in your spiritual life as you grow. The core question, am I going to let my life be open before God? Am I going to walk and live in the light so that I experience ongoing understanding of my sin and ongoing repentance, change, and transformation empowered by the Holy Spirit? C.S. Lewis, and two C.S. Lewis sections in one sermon. I know, I've, I've been saving them. 
C.S. Lewis says that we're prone to hide our sin in the darkness and shadows of our lives, but should know that a sudden turning on of the lights usually reveals things best. Here's what he says. I think this is from Letters to Malcolm in his book on prayer. He says, Surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of human, what sort of man he is. See, what he's talking about is the fact that usually we're, we're putting on a show. Like we put on a spiritual show when we know we're going to be seen. When we know the lights are on, we make sure we put on the spiritual show, we decide what, we'll, what we're going to present, and we hide a whole lot in the darkness. He goes on, surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. It's those moments of surprise. He gives this vivid picture. If there are rats in a cellar, you're most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. This is the way we deal with our sin a lot, right? Oh, it was the circumstances. This, this challenge came up all of a sudden. You know, no, no, no. It's just exposing what's there is what he's saying. And he goes, the suddenness does not create the rats, it only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will take cover before you switch on the light. It gives this picture, you know, the lights go on and everything just kind of runs for the hiding, right? I mean, we can all imagine it from, you know, dozens of movie scenes where the kids are having a house party while the, while the parents are away, right? And, and, you know, the lights are turned down, the music's going on, and all kinds of people who are not supposed to be there are there, and all kinds of things are happening in the house that shouldn't be happening in the house. And then all of a sudden, surprise, the parents come, on, come in and the lights turned on. And what happens? Chaos. Everybody starts running, Get me into the darkness. I want to run out into the dark night. I don't want to be seen as being here, and I don't want you to see what I had in my hands. This is the picture. We run for the darkness rather than the light telling the true story about us. Here's what that means. That means one of the largest barriers that any of us have to really experiencing God's grace is our unwillingness to have our own evil and sin seen in the light of God's truth. It's our biggest barrier. The case can be made that this is true for initially coming to a settled faith in Christ. Listen, if you're not a Christian here today, the hardest thing you're going to have to come to grips with is the depth of your sin. Before you can really understand why we would celebrate Jesus, you're going to have to see yourself in the honest light of God's truth and instruction. You're going to have to see your character compared to God's holiness and not your neighbor's. And come to grips with how far you have fallen short of what God created you to be. And until you can do that, the cross isn't going to make much sense to you where Jesus paid for our sins and offers free forgiveness for all those who will believe on his name. But that hope is handed out to you freely, extended to you today. So initially coming to faith, this is a huge thing that we have to walk through. You may get hung up on hearing that you're a deep enough sinner that you should stop acting like you're such a good person on the outside and face it with an inward humility that the corruption of sin runs deep in you. And in the words of Jesus, you need to be born again by his life-giving spirit. So, 
Maybe you haven't come to faith, faith in Christ yet because you don't really believe you're in need of a Savior and you're not that bad. We face the same challenge, though, if you're a Christian here today, in growing spiritually. Making progress in the spiritual life is an ever-increasing recognition and understanding of your need for God's grace. A deepening sense of how broken you are and how much you need Him to remake you. If you've come to a place of pride in your spiritual life about your spiritual progress, you may find yourself stuck in the same way. You don't really think much needs to change or mature in your life. You've hidden from the view the real problems and challenges, and you avoid the sort of spiritual honesty and community that is needed for real growth. The light terrifies you. Just the light of brothers and sisters in Christ makes you nervous. You know, I've always been an advocate for taking away as many barriers to non-Christians coming into the church and understanding the gospel as we possibly can. But both for Christian and non-Christian alike, the most uncomfortable things about Christianity are the central truths of it itself that challenge us and remind us that the light terrifies us, even if it's just those beside us and not God. How much more if our life was brought before the piercing, all-seeing eyes of God? So as an application, your greatest barrier to spiritual growth and salvation may be that you're unwilling to humble yourself and be seen as spiritually needy and destitute. This is where I think the picture of Nicodemus comes into full view. Think about what he represents here in this story. He is, in a sense, a seeker in limbo. He's interested. He's curious. He wants to know more. On one side, that's admirable. And it's worth recognizing he's come at least to talk to Jesus while other religious leaders have just combated him and run away. He is exploring. But the question in the passage sort of leaves us with this question and says, what are you going to do? The question really remains of what he will do with Jesus. Jesus is saying that to follow him and experience salvation, Nicodemus will have to own how deeply he needs it. Of course, the challenge to what he needs to do becomes more apparent when we see that Nicodemus has come at night. I mean, think about this, this idea that we have to walk into the light and the tension between the fact that Nicodemus has come, night, come at night. And the question is, do you really want to know, Nicodemus? Like any time of the day, no matter who sees you, no matter what it costs you socially, do you want to know God? That deeply? Are you willing to walk in the light and just be honest, you don't know the answers to the questions you're after? And humbly in the daytime be seen hearing my words, responding to my words? Or are you only going to come at night? And I think that's what we all have to face, isn't it? Do I want to be exposed? Do I want to be out there where others can see that I don't even know yet. I don't have my roots down in genuine faith. I've got more questions than answers. Am I willing to be that honest so that God can do His real work in me? Or would I rather just do that in the most secret ways, trying to work it out on my own? You see, for Nicodemus, it was a low-cost search, hidden from view, admirable on some level, but still not in the light and that's what we have going on here so the third thing we see jesus doing at the end of the passage is jesus invites us he invites the willing 
to take a step of faith into the light. Jesus paints a picture of a contrast with this last verse in the passage. Verse 21. It's really powerful. He says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So he makes the contrast between the person in verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. And if, if you've got a sincerity about your pursuit, light doesn't bother you. Whoever does what is true, if you've been walking in integrity, you're not afraid of the light. If you have an honest assessment of yourself, of where you're at in your maturity, not worried about the light. If you want to be seen as great, further ahead than you are, worried about the light. And so Jesus says the step of progress for all of us is this radical honesty of walking in the light. And he invites us to take a step of faith into the light by painting a picture of this contrast. A life that has been and is being transformed by the living light is what Jesus invites us into. Where there's exposure of our sin, there's repentance, there's change, there's obedience, but there's grace and there's freedom. For many of you, you are living in the bondage of keeping up an image that your life really doesn't measure up to. And what is it worth? The only thing you can do is try to play with the lights. Try to keep the lights down low so nobody can see what it's really like. To keep the eyes of examination, your own examination, others' examination, and ultimately God's examination off your life. But Jesus says there's this wonderful freedom that we can have when we begin to come out into the light. His grace has been promised. It's sufficient for the worst of our sin, for the ugliest of our failures. He said that he will save us from perishing. He will remove us from condemnation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. We don't live under condemnation when we walk in the light and we've been united to Christ by faith because his record becomes our record and now we can deal with who we really are. And then every step of progress is seen as a gift from God produced in us by his power and strength. Notice what he says at the end. Bring your life into the light so it can be seen that your works have truly been done in God. That God is the source of what's being worked into you. What's being born new in you. He's describing a spiritual life that doesn't mind the bright light because it trusts that God uses it to produce sincere holiness and integrity of character. In fact, Jesus says there's an eagerness for the light. Because it puts on display what God can work into the soul of someone who has come to him for saving grace through Jesus. The person who's walking with Christ does not fear the light and even wants their life to be examined. The good, the bad, and the ugly because it further highlights what God's spirit produces in the grace we've received when we've been genuinely saved. He calls it works done in God. Not works done in my strength, but things that can only be accounted for because of the new life produced by being born spiritually by God.
the answer for the growth, the reason it's present, the change that has occurred has been done in God. It's God's grace that grows us. It's God's provision that frees us from shame and guilt. It's God's promises that secure us when our weakness makes us feel insecure. Jesus wants us to hear the freedom in this last verse and be willing to live a life in the light. True spiritual seeking, true growth in maturity. And I just wonder how much you really want that. That's the question each of us have to ask. Am I willing to take the necessary steps to have an open, honest life before God, before others in the body of Christ, so that I can grow in the ways that God wants to grow me? Ultimately, what does this look like as we close? Well, in a church culture like here at Pillar, it means that we learn to engage in, in deeper and deeper community that allows others to know us deeply and help us grow. That's what we have to build together. We have to build community in the body of Christ. It's not easy to do. Some of you really avoid it, <laughs> to be honest. And you'll be stunted in your growth because of it. But we have to build community. We've got to work together to build community in the body of Christ that's centered around the grace of Jesus so that people feel safe and en encouraged to be honest about who they are. And then we have to help apply the gospel of God's grace that doesn't condemn them, but helps them experience the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We have to walk with them a long ways. We've got to pray for them when it's difficult. We have to help pick them up when they fall. And every one of us needs a culture like that if we're going to grow spiritually. And it's, and it's our responsibility to be caretakers of that kind of culture, to, to promote that kind of culture here. But that only happens when we understand deeply that we're sinners whose hope for salvation and spiritual maturity is in the truth of the gospel by the power of Jesus and not in our own discipline and strengths. So that's what it looks like. For you as an individual, it means learning to live a life of sincerity and transparency before God and with others is critical to your faith and spiritual growth. If you've never seen that as critical to your faith and spiritual growth, I just want to encourage you to consider it. If you keep yourself isolated and hiding, you will likely remain spiritually stunted. Cultivating a life of confessing our sin to God and having trusted people around you that you talk about things with as well is critical for all of us. Hiding sin gives it power. And for some of us, that may be the first step we need to take. Proverbs says, he who covers his sin will not pr prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. That we have to find mature, godly people around us in the body of Christ where we can say, this is what's really going on in my life. I need your help. And I've been so encouraged by the testimonies over the years of people who took those steps and, and, and have often left here when they transition out of here just weeping with gratitude of what God's done in their heart and life. And maybe that needs to be you in this next season, where you experience some real honest moments in your life, love from other people, encouragement, to take the steps that you need to to really grow in Christ. But ultimately, for some of us today, the way you need to respond to this is to take your first steps of real faith and confess to God that you are a sinner. That you're willing to turn from your sin to receive this promise that Jesus says in here. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That you can know that you have a secured relationship with God. That your sin has been forgiven. Your debt has been paid because of the purpose of God's love in sending his son. That Jesus 
holds that out to you, free to receive as a gift from God. It's the heart of John 3.16. You may wonder how you do that. You may wonder, what, you know, do, I, do I need to say a certain thing? Do I need to, you know, All you need to do is realize that you are spiritually bankrupt without God. Bring your life before Him and in simple prayer say, God, I want this salvation that Jesus offers. Forgive me for my sins. Thank you for sending Him to the cross. And he, he'll do the rest. He's the one that grants life. He's the one that renews. He hears our prayers and he responds. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we go into a time of preparation for the Lord's Supper and as we think about how we need to respond this morning. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask you to consider a question. We're not going to be looking around. I'm not going to ask you to, to walk an aisle this morning, but I do want you to, to consider how God would have you respond. Maybe for a few moments as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, you just need to come honestly before God about some area in your life and confess it. Ask Him how you can take steps toward growth. But maybe you're here today and you would be honest and say, you know, I'm not confident I have a relationship with God. I'm not confident I've ever been saved. And today, I want to respond and put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to know today that my sins have been forgiven. And I've received this promise of eternal life that Jesus offers in his word. I'm not going to ask you to take a step, but, but maybe that's where you're at. And if you'd be honest to admit that, I want to be able to pray for you, connect with you. Right there where you're at, I'm just going to ask you to do something that takes a little bit of courage. Without anyone else looking around, just slip your hand up where you're at. If you said, today I need to take the first step to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've heard the promise of his love and forgiveness, but I've never responded. Today I want to respond and put my faith in Jesus. Is there anyone? Just slip your hand where you're at. Slip it up and acknowledge. That's me. That's what I need. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for these words. That you loved us enough to send your son so that we could experience saving hope and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence that your purpose for bringing our lives into the light is that you might mature us Heal us, grow us, transform us into the image of your son, that we might experience life and experience it abundantly. Lord, I pray that you'd give us confidence as we've heard this word, that your purposes are good. That your intentions in those hard moments are not our condemnation, but our salvation and our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.